you know, sometimes we show things that just are absolutely the opposite of what we, uh, what we endorse. So I enjoyed that because it's not only comical, but it is absolutely the opposite. I want us to have our attention on worship, not as it's all about us and how it can make us feel and we can fit it into our schedule, but worship, really, worship is, it is a lifestyle. It's the way we live our lives for the Lord. It's not just an event on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, though this is important. I don't mitigate or minimize at all coming together as the people of God, worshiping our triune, awesome God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And if we genuinely worship Him as He is worthy to be worshiped, when we exit this place, we will continue uh, to worship God. It'll make a difference in the way we live and the way we treat our spouses, the way we treat our children. It'll make a difference in our purity, uh, in our jobs, every facet of our lives. Today we're going to start in Revelation chapter 4. My goal is to get through verse 6. I don't know how far I'm going to make it this morning, but we're going to begin in Revelation chapter 4, and the message is entitled, Heavenly Worship. And what John does here is he, peers, he pulls back the curtains just a little bit and allows you and me to peer into the throne room of God, and we can see God high and lifted up. Just like Isaiah said, I, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and John says, I saw a throne in heaven, and the one who occupies this throne, and he begins uh, to describe him. A couple of writers that I've come across said these words about Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. The first one said this, at this point in the apocalypse, John begins to teach us what is at the very heart of the entire book. Revelation 4 and 5, he said, are at the very heart of the teaching. Another writer put it this way, chapters 4 and 5 are a unit, and in a real sense, they are the key chapters in the entire apocalypse. So chapters 4 and 5, as we focus on heavenly worship, it helps us get our attention off of our woes and our difficulties and life here on this earth, and we, and we lift up our eyes, and we, we lift up our, our faces to God, and we see as God is sovereign, as He is on the throne, as He is not diminished, and He is not worried, He is not, I mean, He is just absolutely God enthroned, and that ought to give you and me as His people, that ought to give us great hope and great courage and confidence as we see God for who He, who he really is. The word throne is an important word. It appears, the Greek word, by the way, it's interesting, it's the word thronos. And so you can see it's very transliterated into English. The word throne is used 37 times in the book of Revelation. 13 of those 37 times occur in Revelation chapter 4. 11 of those 13 refer specifically to the throne of God. Now, there are some interesting characters I'm going to introduce to you, these 24 elders. And then next time, we're going to look at these beasts, these living, amazing creatures, and we'll have to wait till next time to talk about them. But we're in Revelation chapter one, um, 4, and I'm going to begin in verse 1, and you can read along with me as the Bible says, and after these things, after these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne, a thronos, was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. 
And he who sat on the throne. Now, John's going to begin to describe the one on the throne, okay? Here's the way John tries to describe the indescribable. Now, God is a spirit, okay? And so somehow, God has given this divine theophany, this revelation to John then, as he did in Isaiah centuries before, as those men try to describe the indescribable. And here's what John says. He who sat there was, he was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So you have diamond, fiery, ruby, red, and emerald green. Put that in your mind for just a moment. This translucent, beautiful diamond. Then you've got this fiery sardis red gem. And and then you have this bright, brilliant green. You see what John's trying to do? He's trying with human picturesque language, trying to describe for us this awesome God that resides in heaven, who reigns, who is royal, who is sovereign, who's providential, who's almighty, who's amazing. He's up there in heaven. And John says, I was transported in the spirit in this moment of ecstasy. And I, and I see, now, this ecstasy is not ecstasy-induced. It's not cocaine-induced or heroin-induced. It's not other, that kind of induced. It's Holy Spirit of God-induced, all right? He is, he's in the spirit, and he sees God for who God is. And then he says in verse 4, around the throne. It gets interesting. Oh, my. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And now John's entered another color, if you will. Now you've got, in addition to this translucent diamond, you've got the ruby red, you've got the emerald green. Now you've got this gold, this brilliant golden crowns juxtaposed with their flowing white robes, the 24 elders. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. The word chrysos literally means frost or ice. Now you add to the gold and the white and the green and the red. Now you've got this brilliant, this ice frosty look. And then John is trying to describe for us. He's allowing us to peer into heaven and see this awesome one seated on the throne. And so before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne... And around the throne were these guys, these four living creatures. They are full of eyes in front and in back. And I'm telling you, they are some ominous, amazing creatures that we're going to study uh, next time. In order to understand John, we've got to go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. It's imperative that we understand this because in verse 1, John says, after these things... After these things, I was transported in a heavenly vision, and the one speaking to me was speaking like a clarion trumpet. This is the voice of Christ. I truly believe the voice of Christ calling John in this this state, coming up into heaven so he can see what is there. The Bible says in Revelation 1.19, he says, Write the things which you have seen, A, and the things which are, B, 
and the things which will take place see. Now, if we can leave that verse up there for just a moment, let, let's make sure we understand the, the outline, if you will, that John gives to us in, in 119 that is very prominent, I believe, in Revelation 4.1. He said, write the things that you have seen. Now, chapter 1 describes Jesus, and it's, it's beautiful. It's, a, it's an amazing description of Jesus, and we looked at that. We talked about his eyes of, of fire and his glowing hair and his feet like bronze brass. And, and so, write the things, John, that you have seen, and he did. And he says, now write the things which are. The things which are is Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia Minor. By the way, those seven churches... It, it, it's, it's, it's just absolutely miraculous how God has done this. Those churches then are so representative of churches throughout the history of Christendom. And by the way, we are still in what you would call the church age. Uh, we are in the church age. Jesus Christ has not come again. So between his first coming and his second coming, this is the church age. And the churches that operated and lived then in Smyrna and Thyatira and Pergamos and so forth, we are the church here in Austin or one of the churches here in Austin, one of the churches that is scattered throughout the globe. So that is the things that are. Now the next one is interesting. John, I want you to write the things which will take place after this. Now go to 4, 1. After these things, here we are. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, John is going to write to us the things that will take place. Things that I believe have not taken place even in 2014. I know people disagree with this. I know there are preterist people that, that I respect, have a lot of respect for, but they see Revelation as a book of history. But I see Revelation primarily as a book about the future. One writer put it this way. He said, you know, Revelation 4.1 starts like it ends, or it ends like it starts. When John says in Revelation 4.1, after these things, and then he can close it, closes it by saying, which take place after these things. He said the second occurrence of after these things relates to God's chronology. Its use marks an important transition in the book of Revelation from the church age, the things that are, Okay, to the third great division of the book, the things that must or that will take place found in chapters 4 through 22. This writer, Dr. MacArthur, goes on to say, the shifts, the shifts from matters concerning the church, which is nowhere mentioned. The church is nowhere mentioned in Revelation 4 through 19, chapters 4 through 19. So it shifts now from the church to earth to a dramatic scene in heaven. That scene in heaven centers on a throne. The scene in heaven centers on a throne and someone who's on that throne, okay? And then from there, the prologue to the future historical events of the tribulation, the millennial reign, and the eternal state, which is unfolded for us in Revelation chapters 6 through 22. So, the events that we're about to get to study in chapter 4 are absolutely phenomenal. You know, I, I, I love studying this book and... God has proven so true to his word. He said, uh, read this book, study this book, and I will bless you. And we are seeing some of the favor and the blessing of God upon uh, great hills as we're honoring the Lord by reading this book and studying this, studying this book. By the way, this is the first Sunday that we have not baptized somebody since basically we started studying this book. About nine weeks it's been since we, and I miss that. 
Anybody want to get baptized? Amen. I'll hop in my robe here in just a minute. I mean, we, we, we love to see that. And now we're just seeing God do those kind of things in our finances and in our baptisms and our salvations and our church membership. And I just attribute that to Almighty God saying, blessed are you, Great Hills, because you are studying this book. So I want to get right into it. Number one is the person or the one around the throne, the one who is seated on the throne. John is in the Spirit, and he says, Behold, do you see that in verse, in verse 2? He says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, in this Spirit of the Holy Spirit, in this moment of revelation, and he says, And behold. Now, behold means listen to me. Listen up. Pay close attention because I'm in the Spirit, and I see. Now, behold, I'm going to tell you what I see. I see a throne that is set in heaven, and there is one who sits on the throne. This is none other than Almighty God, the Lord God Almighty. As one person put it, Revelation chapter 4 talks about God the Father, and Revelation chapter 5 will talk about God the Son. And then in some mysterious, wonderful, amazing, Trinitarian way, there God is, and God the Father, He is highlighted. He is focused upon the, the magnifying glass, if you will, and John rivets our attention upon God. Now, you say, what's the big deal about a throne? Listen, thrones are for kings, and God is the king of the universe. And what John is trying to communicate to us that this throne connotes a couple of things. Number one, it connotes awesome, omnipotent power. He is the reigning monarch. He is the Lord God Almighty. All the other lords and kings and all the other queens and royalties and dignitaries, they pale into comparison to this king. He is the one true God. And that God sits on a throne, and it connotes to us great, awesome power. But number two, and don't miss this, you're not going to like this. Some of you are not going to like what I'm about to say, but you got to get over it. It connotes judgment. The throne connotes the judgment of God. God is about to pour out judgment on planet Earth according to Revelation 6 through 19. You're going to go through the seals and the trumpets and the vials or the bowls of, of judgment. And, and this is preparatory. The one reigning in heaven above will unleash fury and judgment on the inhabitants of earth below. You say, well, I don't know if I really like that or not, and I'm not so sure why God would be so upset that He would unleash judgment on planet earth. Really? Well, let me give you a few reasons why. And sometimes I think, why am I about to say what I'm about to say? Because I can feel it. I mean, it'll come. Persecution's going to come after I say this. Misunderstanding's going to come after I say this. And by the way, that, that's just part of it. Amen? If you preach the Bible as the Bible is, you are going to be grossly hated by many. Well, here's, here's why God is offended. We abort babies, and we call it a choice. We commit all sorts of fornication and, and adultery, and we call it sexual liberty. We have homosexual relations, and we call it biological. We remove God's laws, God's commandments out of the arena, and we put in humanism and secularism and all the other isms that, praise God, one day are going to become wasms, all right? But we, 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 we supplant God and His laws, and we call that 
true freedom. And we remove the Bible, we remove prayer from the public arena, from schools. We call it education. It's like our nation and the nations of this world is dead set on removing any vestige of righteousness and holiness and removing it from the public domain and trying to just corner it in the sacred domain, and we think God's okay with that. Here's a statement, guys. Listen to this statement. We are so concerned about offending everybody except God. He's the only one we're not worried about offending. And guys, again, whether, whether you like this or not, it really doesn't change it. God's on a throne, and He's going to send judgment, and it's going to pour down from heaven above, and nobody will, will second guess. They will understand clearly it's the one true God. I was reading an email dialogue a, a, a Christian sent to me, and, and I'm going to read some of it to you, and it's going to sound like I'm cussing, but forgive me, but here, here's, here's what this person wrote. And it is just symptomatic. It's just so picturesque of, of what is going on in our culture. And you really need to understand this because when God, when God starts unleashing it, you're going to say, now remind me again, why, why is God doing this? Because God is a God of justice. Stay with me. He's a God of righteousness. He's a God of holiness. He's a God of sanctification. He is a God that is so absolutely other. He is so pristine and He is so holy that none of us have a chance of ever reaching Him, but praise God in His grace. We couldn't get to Him, so He came down to us and He gave us His Son, His only Son, Jesus, who died on a cross, who arose from the dead, and everybody who believes in Jesus goes to heaven. And those that don't believe in Jesus, they don't go to heaven. They go to hell, and they only have themselves to blame. And here's what the email said. God is dead. Nobody cares. If there is a hell, I will see you there. That's my view on religion. I sure as hell won't follow it. And I, if I'm wrong, then what the hell? Looks like a one-way ticket to hell for me. I sure do say hell a lot. What the hell is up with that? At least I get to have fun while I'm here on earth. Sin away. Go, go, sin gadget. I have no reason to believe in God nor do I need any more rules in my life to abide by. So I feel that I should live life like I want to, the way I want to live my life. And if I get punished, then so be it, so what? That's, you say, Brother Danny, you read my email? That's, that's, that's people I live with in my home. Those are people that I go to school with. Those are people that I work with. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but everybody in here knows somebody like that. There is this vitriol, there is this hatred for the one true God. And it's, it's palpable. It is permeating in our culture. We are inundated with it. We are saturated with it. We are intoxicated with this spirit of compromise and with this spirit of just get along and just this spirit of don't worry about God. Don't, he's, a, he's a lovey, puffy, sweet little grandpa God. He won't hurt anybody. He won't judge anybody. Just live like you want to live. And I'm telling you, friend, there's coming a day of judgment. Almighty God will judge planet Earth. And you, if you don't know him, then you better know him. Don't look at me like that. Don't look at me like you. I'm some antiquated, outdated dinosaur from yesteryear. You sound like old Billy Graham, Billy Sunday. They're... Tell you something, friends. 
God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God has not changed. He has not changed. He has not changed. It's not where is the God of Billy Sunday? Where is the God of Moses? Where is the God of Billy Graham? That's not the question. Where are the Moses of God? Where are the Billy Grahams of God? Where are the Billy Sundays of God? Where are the Jerry Falwells of God? Men who had backbone, men who had steel in their spine. And they would stand up and unapologetically preach the word of God. You know why we're in such a mess, church? We're in a mess because people like me have not done their job. If we would do our job and preach the Bible and call people to repentance, call people to holiness, call people to the old-time religion, if we would do that, we would not be in the mess that we're in today. And it's heartbreaking. It breaks my heart. Let me catch my breath. Mercy. So the one, that's him. He's seated on the throne. Now, lest you think he's just a God of judgment, you need to hang on. Because he's not just a God of judgment. He is a God of amazing, unfathomable compassion. I I tried to demonstrate that to you a moment ago with him sending his son, Jesus. But this text, as it goes on, it it will describe more of his... This unity, it looks like a duality, but it's really a unity. It's holiness and love. It's always that. It's holiness and love. You, you cannot separate it. So around the throne. Let's go to point number two, around the throne. John says around the throne there's this emerald rainbow. If you'll notice your worship guide. Thank you, Corey, for that worship guide. Did y'all see the picture? Look at it real quick. What do y'all see on the worship guide? Sorry? Not only do you see a rainbow, what is the dominant color in that rainbow? It's emerald. It's emerald green. That's why we put it on there. Around the throne is this emerald green in appearance. So you've got the diamond, the ruby red, now the emerald green. If the diamond and the red connote or in symbolic or metaphorical of judgment, then green is going to be a metaphor for mercy. And here's why I know that. He uses the word rainbow. Whenever you see the word rainbow, what do you think of? You think of God saying, never again. Am I going to judge the world with a deluge like I did in Genesis 9? I'm going to judge the world. But before I judge, I am calling out for repentance, and I'm going to lavish my mercy and grace. And so within this throne room, if you will, the one seated on the throne, around the throne, is this emerald green. So we see God's holiness and mercy incomplete harmony. Also in verse 4, notice with me, we see around the throne these 24 elders. And by the way, that is compassion personified. Because this God is so holy and He's so just, how can anybody be in His presence except these created ominous creature beasts that we'll study next time? Who are these 24 elders? It depends on who you read. You'll get many different interpretations. Dr. Robert Thomas out in California, I agree with so much of what he says except here. He believes this is a special college of angels, but I don't. I believe the 24 elders, I believe there's significance in the number 24, 12 tribes of Israel, 
12 apostles, 24, it represents all of redeemed humanity. It's not angels. And I'm going to give you three reasons why it's not angels, but it has to refer to, or in my humble opinion, it has to refer to redeemed humanity. Number one, the Greek word presbyteroi. Do you see it? The elders there around the throne. I saw 24 presbyteroi. And by the way, that's where you get the word presbytery or presbyterian, if you will. Elders is never used to describe angels. It's always used to describe humanity. And especially in the epistles, it refers to leaders, pastors who are presbyteroi, elders, leaders in in the church. Number two, it says they are clothed in white robes. One writer says, white garments, they don't go to angels. They go to Christ's righteousness imputed to believers at salvation. That's a good word. Now, the angels here, they are, there, they are there, but that's not who he's talking about. When he says these 24 elders, these white robes clothed in righteousness, imputed righteousness of Christ, number two. Number three, and I like this one. It says they have on their head crowns of gold. Crown is Stephanos. And it's the victor's crown. It's the overcomer's crown. Hey, the angels have not overcome. They, they've, they're created beings who praise and worship God. That, that's what they do. But redeemed humanity, we, we overcome through the blood of the Lamb. Let, let me give you an example. 2 Timothy 4.8. Paul says, Finally there's laid up for me the crown, Stephanos, of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. So I think the 24 represent the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints. They are redeemed with their white clothing, with their crowns of gold, and they are these elders that are representative of all redeemed humanity. And that's what's around the throne. Number three is what's from the throne. Mm -mm -mm. From the throne. Lightnings, thunderings, Voices emanate from the throne. These phenomena, they they correlate in in our minds, or they should, with with the judgment of God. Every time these seals and trumpets and bowls come forward, a similar description is prefacing them, describing them. When Moses received the, the Ten Commandments, the law, in Revelation 19, 16, you see the same kind of phenomenon, these lightnings and these thunderings and these voices. So it connotes this idea of, of God's holiness and righteousness and His judgment. And listen to what one writer says. He said, these visible and audible displays are another reminder that the throne, by the way, which is the centerpiece of heaven, is first and foremost, it's a throne of wrath. That's what that writer says. It is an ominous powerful throne of God. The one seated on it is the one one true God who forever has existed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why is that so confusing? Why can't we understand that? There is a God. And His name is not Muhammad. There is a God. And He is not Buddha. 
Nor is he one of the 330 million Hindu gods that most of the country of India worship today. That's not him at all. This is the one true God. You see, Brother Danny, you, either, you better be either definitely right or you're being very judgmental. I just believe I'm right. Because I believe that that's who he is. I, I just believe that's, that's who he is. How did that become so controversial in America? I, I just, I don't know. Number four is before the throne. And this is our last point. I'm going to wrap it up. Before the throne, he says there are these seven lamps, torches of fire before the throne. These are darkness-dispelling torches. They, they are not emitting this soft light, okay? As the New Living Translation says, this is the sevenfold Spirit of God. This is the one Holy Spirit. And remember in Isaiah, and remember also in Zechariah, and we talked about this, that God is described, or the Holy Spirit is described in the sevenfold descriptive way in Isaiah chapter 11. So he is one Holy Spirit, and John is describing him with this sevenfold dimension of power, if you will. It's interesting to me at this point that we have the Trinity, we have God the Father. God the Son, and now God the Holy Spirit. And one writer says, the comforter of those who love Christ will be the consumer of those who reject Him. And then finally in verse 6, John says, I see, or I saw, a sea of glass like crystal before the throne. This vast expanse of clear glass, it's not the sea, because the Bible says in heaven there is no sea. Sea connotes usually tumult, hurricanes, fierceness. And it's not that in heaven. It is the sea of glass before the throne of God. Again, I think it represents the purity, the pristine purity of God. What a marvelous scene it is. There's one seated on the throne. There's much happening around his throne. So much going on from the throne and so much before the throne. Can I ask you a question? Will you be there? Will you be one of those 24? They represent redeemed humanity. Will you be there in the throne of God, praising Him and worshiping Him? I saw last night, I was just utterly horrified where eight Christians were crucified in Syria recently. ISIS impaled them on a cross in Syria. And those same people, by the way, that hate Christians there, they even more hate Christians here. And there is a religion, there is a desire to obliterate monotheistic Israel and Christians. And for the life of me, I, I don't understand why, why people don't get that, why people aren't going, wait a minute, if there has to be such a powerful evil, surely there is a power of love. And Jesus is that love, okay? You'll never read of Christians impaling Muslims or Buddhists or anybody on crosses. Our God does not tolerate that. Our God is a God of justice, and He's a God of compassion. So let me ask you again, are you going to be there? You're not going to be there unless you're depending upon Christ and Christ alone. If you're depending upon your wealth, 
if you're dependent upon your academia, your degrees, you're dependent upon your social status, you're dependent upon where you live in America, if you're dependent on anything else, you're going to be sorely disappointed because there's only one entry. Jesus says, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who find it, but narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. Oh. Let me read this verse, then we'll have our invitation. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, remove from your conscience from dead works to serve the living God through the blood of his Son. So today I offer you salvation. I invite you today, whether you're listening on the internet or watching on television, If you're here in Austin, Texas, right here at Great Hills Baptist Church, we offer you today a God that loves you, a God of holiness, a God of wrath, a God of justice, a God of love, and he invites you to repent of your sins and place your faith in him and him alone. I know that's myopic. I know that's exclusive. I know that that's that many in the world would say that is intolerable, that is inexcusable, and I'm just here to tell you, I still believe it. I still believe it that Jesus Christ, when he said, I am the way the truth, and the life. And you have a decision to make. Either he's lying, through his teeth he's lying, or he's crazy, he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord God Almighty. You and I have to decide. And the way we make that decision will determine our eternal destiny, and it will also determine our ethics and our behavior here on this earth. So let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, the name above all names. And Lord, this is a day of urgency. This is a day, God, you've allowed us to peer into the very throne room. And you are the occupant upon that throne. And we we here on earth, Lord, we we just get a glimpse and we, we look forward to that day when what we have seen dimly, we will see you face to face. Father, I pray that you would reward the faith and the righteousness of your people. God, of course, I pray that you would spare us judgment. I pray that you would spare us the great tribulation. And I believe you will. I hope I'm right. But I believe you will. But Lord, if we have to walk through anything, I thank you that you will walk with us. And that you will be faithful. You will empower us to do like those seven martyrs did yesterday. You will give us that supernatural power to love and to forgive in the midst of hate. Lord, the heart of man is exceedingly wicked. My heart is wicked. Our hearts are wicked, God. We need a purifying, cleansing work of God every day. And especially this day. As you're appearing and you're coming so very close. So very close. So may we be found faithful, God. May we tell our children. May we tell our neighbors. May we tell the nations about you before it's eternally too late. Lord, would you add to your church here at Great Hills today? Lord, would you call out men and women who will go to the mission field, men and women who will lay down their avocations and their preoccupations, and they will say, with the breath that I have left and the gifts and skills and abilities that I have, I will place them on the altar for the gospel, for the kingdom of God. Lord, would you draw people today to yourself in salvation, to our church, and to the nations. And this is my prayer.
In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me, please? God bless you. Thank you for listening so attentively. Thank you for believing in the book. Thank you for honoring God. I just want to tell you, we're going to be here for a few moments. If you want to come and you want to pray and you want somebody to encourage you, you want to give your life to Christ today, man, why don't you come? We're calling you. We're inviting you to come, even now as we sing.